Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 258 with Ken Coleman. I think you'll dig this conversation because Ken and I are talking about uh, what's the environment, what you got to do to do the work that you are doing best. So you'll learn one, a litmus test for your passion, two, the nuclear option for dealing with a difficult teammate or boss, and three, what to do when you're burnt out at work, but you can't leave the spot just yet. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcripts or the links to items that we've referenced, it's on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F258. Now, here's Ken's story. Ken Coleman is the host of The Ken Coleman Show, an entre-leadership podcast and author of One Question, Life-Changing Answers from Today's Leading Voices. Ken is an acclaimed interviewer and broadcaster who equips, encourages, and entertains listeners through thought-provoking interviews, helping them grow their businesses, pursue their passions, and move toward a fulfilled purpose. You can follow him on Twitter at Ken Coleman, on Instagram at Ken W. Coleman, and online at KenColemanShow.com or Facebook.com slash Ken Coleman host. Here is Ken. Ken, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thrilled to be on. Thanks for having me, Pete. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to it. It's so fun. I've seen your name many, many times in the iTunes Careers podcast charts, and now you got two of them sort of surrounding me in the top 10, which not that the rankings matter. It's quite a mystery how they (laughs) arrive there, but it's fun to be talking to you like live, like you're a real person and here we are chatting. Yeah, well, you know what? I am live and I'm a real person. So that's, that's, that's very exciting. <laughs> two for two. Well, and so I'd love it if you could dispel something that I've been wondering about for quite a while when I see the Entre Leadership podcast uh, logo. What does the word Entre Leadership mean? Because I've got my own conceptions, but I'd like to hear from you. Is it a state of mind or a precise definition or a brand? What should I think about with this word? Yeah, well, Dave Ramsey is the founder of Ramsey Solutions, the Dave Ramsey Show, and the author of that New York Times bestselling book, Entree Leadership. And the word comes from Dave's desire to train internal leaders. Many, many years ago, just as his company was beginning to grow in the 20, 30, 40 team member range, just training his own internal leaders. And he began to think through, now, what what does a healthy leader look like in an organization? We certainly want them to have all of the traits of an entrepreneur, but we also want them to be solid leaders as well. And not all entrepreneurs are great leaders. There's a real combination. If you think your audience, you know, they can define what an entrepreneur is and then what a leader is. And so he, he smashed those two words together. He goes, I want leaders who are solid and can lead, but also have an entrepreneurial spirit and entrepreneurial focus. And so the word entree leadership together came into a teaching curriculum internal. Then people started coming in from outside the walls of Ramsey Solutions. And over time, eventually it became a division and a best-selling book. So that's what entree leadership means. It just means an entrepreneurial leader. Okay, understood. I'm with you there. And so now you've got a newer show here, The Ken Coleman Show, which is cool. So it's all about, well, as I read from the description and listen to a little bit, folks who who sort of feel often stuck in their jobs, could you give us the, the broader picture for what that show is all about and, and a fuller picture for the problem of folks feeling stuck in their jobs? 
Sure. Well, the Ken Coleman Show is completely focused on helping people discover what it is that they were created to do. And then once they discover that, well, then how do you make a plan to see that dream become a reality? That is, in fact, what it's about. So you got people across the spectrum. You have people who call in on the show, and they're not sure what it is that they want to do with their life or uh, what it is that they were created to do. No clues. They just need some sounding board to begin to, to look internally. And I'll get to that in a second. Then we have people who are confused, so they have a good sense of what they may be passionate about, but they're not sure how their talent intersects there. Then you have a large group of people that are stuck. And these are people who are actually good at their job. They have great talent, but they're doing something that has zero passion. And so this all comes from a very simple analogy that a mentor gave to me many, many years ago when I was in my 20s. And the idea that is that we all have a sweet spot. And our sweet spot is at the intersection of our greatest talent and greatest passion. So in other words, we are living and working in our sweet spot when we are using our top skills, top talents, the things we do best to do the work that we're passionate about, the work that we love. And then when you throw values on the back end of that, so I use my great talent to perform my great passion to see the results that I care most about. That's talent, passion, values. When those three can intersect in that type of a purpose sentence and we live that out, we're in our sweet spot. And everybody gets that analogy from sports. If you've played any type of sports, whether it be a baseball bat or a tennis racket, a golf club, when you hit the ball perfectly in the sweet spot of that instrument, it's almost as if you cannot feel the contact of the ball. It's such a clean, crisp hit. And this isn't just a homespun metaphor. There's a guy by the name of Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. You cannot spell it. You'd have to look it up. But he's a Romanian psychologist. That's right. And he's done 30 years of work on this idea of flow. And what he describes is essentially the same process of striking a ball with a club or racket or a bat in that sweet spot. It just feels as though it's effortless. It's almost as if time begins to stand still and disappear. So there's great science behind this. And so Pete, we've thrown this out there. We put it out there three months ago and the response has been fantastic because people need a sounding board. People need help walking through what their top talents are and what their top passions are and how those intersect. And so that's what we do every day one caller at a time. Okay, very cool. So, well, there's so much to, to dig into there. And so I'd love to get your take on, so I guess a role that matches your talent, your passion, and your values. And I guess in a way, this isn't quite binary in terms of this matches my talent, this does not match my talent. This matches my passion, this does not match my, my passion. But it's kind of sort of like like a spectrum or zero to 100% range associated with a given role and how well it's fitting into that sweet spot. So I'd love it if maybe you could orient us a little bit to what does something that's kind of in your talent or your passion or your values sweet spot look, sound, feel like in practice versus something that is awesomely on track in your talent, your passion, your values. So I, I imagine you've had many listeners and many callers and, and many clients and such that you've explored and assessed that. But I think it'd be great if you could, you could paint that picture for listeners so that it's a little bit of a, oh, I thought I was doing okay, but wow, there's a whole lot more out there for me. Sure. Well, I think the easiest way to describe what you're asking me to describe is what does it actually look like and feel like when I am doing work that I was created to do? And it again, it comes down to the simple scale 
of does the work that I'm doing right now, does it fire up my soul? Because if it doesn't, now we know, well, there's reasons why. But it's the idea that when you are engaged in work that you truly love, that you're passionate about, it's because you're actually good at it. Very few among us, I'm sure there's some freaks out there who like to do things they're terrible at. The only thing I do like that is golf. Like I play golf and I'm terrible, but I enjoy the camaraderie. And so the reality is most of us don't want to do anything that we're not good at. And so you can test your passion level. And so do you feel yourself alive and excited? Do you get a bit of a rush? Do you feel the juice? You know, you you just are like, man, this is so much fun. I enjoy this. I get so much out of this work. I don't want to stop. I find time just, as I said earlier, beginning to slip away before I realize it. Passion is the great indicator as it relates to work that I love and work that matters to me. That's values. So if you don't feel that and sense that, I can just tell you, it's the greatest indicator and it's the simplest indicator then something's off. And most likely, what we find is, is that you may be good at doing what it is that you're doing, but there's no intrinsic connection for you. There's no heart connection. There's no soul connection. And so that's what you're always looking for. Now, you can flip that and you can see where people get confused and spend decades feeling like they've not caught an opportunity. So this is the flip side of the question you asked me. What does it look like when you're not in the sweet spot? Well, what we see a lot of times is people pursuing something that they are very passionate about. So a lot of emotion and devotion towards some work. But sadly, They're not aware that they don't have the talent to pull it off. Something's missing, and it's in the talent skill section. Maybe sometimes it's just something you need to learn, but you'll spend so much time pursuing something you're passionate about that you don't have the talent to pull off. I run into this on the show a lot, Pete, with people who have tried so many different entrepreneurial opportunities, and it just never clicked for them. And then when you begin to break it down, you realize they didn't have the skill to pull off what they were trying to pull off. They loved it. And so a personal example to pick on myself, I love the game of basketball. I absolutely love it. I love to consume it. I love to play it. But I'm 43 years old and I'm five foot nine. So if I tried to make a living playing basketball or coaching basketball, it's just simply never going to work. And so you have to be able to understand, wait a second, do I have the necessary talent and skill? to perform this function that I'm passionate about. And if not, it's just about dialing it back and getting into a space of self-awareness to go, okay, this might be something that I do as a hobby or engage in a hobby, but I can't pull it off at least in this function. So I would work with somebody on the phone and say, okay, what do you love most about this type of work? And then you get to understand what it is they love the most. You go, okay, now what are your top talents? Can you pull that off? Because maybe it's just a redirection and it's a different perspective a different avenue of performing work that you care about. So again, it's back to, am I having a hard time getting to work on Monday mornings? That's an issue of burnout. And if you're passionate about something, you never burn out. You might get really, really tired and need a break, but you don't burn out. Okay. That's a helpful picture. Thank you. And so now, now I'm thinking a little bit about some of the tricky issues. I think that it's quite possible that you could be in a role where you get the talent, the passion, the values, and yet it's not pop it or click it. We talked about entrepreneurial things. I thought, well, they might just not have a product market fit in terms of like the actual good or service that they're bringing to the market and, and no one really kind of wants it badly enough to buy it, which I've seen and lived numerous times in, in my entrepreneurial failures. And then also I think outside of entrepreneurial 
land. If you're enmeshed in an organization with people and politics and teams and, and all that, I'm curious to, to zoom in there because I think there are many folks that I'm thinking of a few right now, those close to me, who they got the talent. They're really great at doing the thing. They got the passion. They really believe in what it's all about and think it's, it's really cool to advance it. And they've got the values in terms of that's really meaningful stuff that they're working. I, I was, let's talk about healthcare industry, for example. And yet, you know, there could be some challenges with regard to difficult coworkers, employees, bosses, politics, meetings. It's sort of like the external kind of surrounding stuff that kind of diminishes the beautiful fit that we found here and brings it down. So the experience of work is not delightful and awesome. What are some of your perspectives for dealing with those just difficult things that get in the way there. Well, you gave me two scenarios, so I'll try to address both of them. Let's go to the last scenario, which is that lines up, the work lines up with their passion, their talent, and their values, but it's not fun anymore because they're, they either got a difficult leader uh, or they've got difficult team members or the culture itself is really unhealthy, and we have that all the time on the show. But again, you're in your sweet spot, but this idea that life is a, a yellow brick road with little people singing to you, like in the movie The Wizard of Oz, as you move along the journey, that's just not the reality. So I would say to that person, you're doing the right thing, but you're in the wrong place. So you know, there's no confusion. You're doing the right thing, but you're not in the right place. Because if you can't fix the culture and you've got difficult people, then you need to get out. And I, again, Pete, I have that call pretty regularly. I'd say I probably get in that call five or six times a week, and, and it confuses us. And rightfully so, because you're going, wait a second, I'm dreading going into work. I must not be in the right industry. What am I supposed to be doing? And when I ask the follow-up questions, you find out, no, you're just in the wrong place. You're in an unhealthy environment. Get out. Well, yeah, that's really what I zero in on. So get out. Like, How do you navigate a little bit of that tricky zone in terms of you sort of get out right away. You could try to to change, to adjust, to influence things, to provide some feedback. How do you think about that world? If folks are right there right now, it's like, mm, I am doing the right stuff, but I am in the wrong spot. What would you say are kind of like the immediate next step actions? Well, the first thing is, is can you do anything to make it better? What can you do before you pull the eject string there or the, you know, hit the eject button? What can you do to make things better? Is there anything you can do? So for instance, if you got some difficult teammates, then I think there's some real healthy confrontation. You need to go to leadership. You need to go directly to them and you work on it. I certainly believe in redemptive power. I believe in redemption that people can learn. So I'd start there. You don't just throw your hands in the air the first time you deal with a difficult person. So after that, if if there's no resolution after you've handled yourself well on a peer-to-peer basis and then you've taken the problem to leadership, and if the problem doesn't get better, then you're immediately going, okay, what's my plan? What's my plan to get out? And, And when you think about a plan, you're always going, all right, where is it that I want to jump to? How long is that going to take to get in a position where I can jump? Is there some additional qualifications, education, things of that nature that I'm going to have to do? Some networking, relationshiping, and you don't just jump. I never recommend that unless you are in physical or mental danger. If it's that serious, then you leave that day. I don't want to minimize that because that happens. However, most of us can put up with difficult people. Most of us can put up with a difficult leader. And so I want you to be strategic about it. And you're thinking through, okay, where is it that I want to land? How am I going to get there? 
How much time do I think is that going to take? And it's just like creating a plan for anything else. If you're planning a vacation, you're planning a, a workout routine, same kind of mindset so that you can move forward, but move forward in control as much as you can. And you're not putting yourself in financial danger or putting yourself out there with nothing to jump to. Now, the only caveat to that is if you've got a substantial emergency fund, you've got a lot of savings out there, or you have zero debt and you're well below your means, then, hey, then I would say eject because there's no stress or pressure on you and you can get out right now. But outside of that, I'd want you to come up with a plan. Okay, cool. Well, and and I love the phrase that you dropped there, redemptive learning which is you know, speaking to my, my Christian roots over here. I dig sure. it. So I want to talk about that because I think that it's easy to assume that someone, that's just the way they are. They don't care. They're checked out. They don't like me. They're not into coaching and growth and learning and, and development. They don't value the same things. What I think it's, it's easy to say that's just the way they are. It's sort of almost like writing them off. And I think part of that comes from maybe folks have tried a couple times and haven't seen much, much traction in terms of bringing an issue up. Or maybe it just comes from sort of a voice of fear justified, like, oh, that sounds like a really tough conversation. Now it probably is worth it. Wasn't going to do anything anyway. So I'd like to get your pro tips on, in practice, how do you engage in some of those difficult conversations and, and embark upon you know, bringing about some redemptive learning? Yeah. Well, before I give you some tips, I mean, we need to acknowledge something that most of us are terrified of confrontation. All right. And so that's a natural thing. It's not fun, especially in a work environment, to sit down with somebody and go, hey, you're a jerk. But you're not going to say it that way. But that's essentially how you feel you're going to come across. And the idea of that is just insane. You're like, I don't want to put up with this. This isn't even worth the stress of thinking about a difficult conversation, otherwise known as confrontation. So a lot of us are really terrified. Now, there are certain people, I happen to be wired this way. If you're familiar with Enneagram, I'm fine with confrontation. Confrontation to me is kind of like, it's a sport. It comes along with life and I'm cool with it. It doesn't mean you have to enjoy being mean. It just means you don't mind the difficult conversation. So if you're going to get in a situation like that and you're at a point where you go, this has got to be fixed, it's got to change or I'm out, then this is all about how you posture yourself. You sit down. I would never do a one-on-one. I would have a leader involved just because I feel like in this day and age, you just need to have a witness there that, hey, this is how this went down. It was handled professionally. But I would have that sit down with that difficult person and go, hey, this is how I'm feeling. And that's not accusatory. That's you're putting it all on you. You're saying, hey, this is how I'm feeling. I'm perceiving you this way. And I want to ask you, is that reality from your point of view? Do you see it that way? Do you understand why I feel that way? And what's happening there are two little tips that you asked for. Number one is you focused on the way you were perceiving it. You didn't present it as a fact. So therefore, they have less chance to be defensive. The second thing you did, which also disarms them, is you ask them if they see it that way. So now you're asking, and the, the, that interrogatory little tool there of a question, again, keeps them from feeling under attack. Now, again, full disclosure, if a person is insecure and naturally defensive, no matter how you say it, they just don't like being called out on anything, no matter how sweet and kind you are. But I would lead with that. And then I would say in the course of the question, hey, I've sat down together today and, and I asked you these questions and I put this out there because I want us to not have this tension. 
you know, and I'm sensing that. And if they agree there's tension, then, hey, what can we do? Because I'm here for this reason, and this is what I want to be, and I want to have a great relationship with you, and this is causing, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. Very honest and extremely clear. Don't beat around the bush. The more ambiguous you are, uh, the more defensive and insecure the person that you are confronting is going to be. And clarity may not be fun. It may be a little awkward, but it is as human beings, we crave clarity. Is there anything worse than being unclear in confrontation? Because the person that you're confronting is going, hey, what they're doing is, is they're going, why don't you just shoot me straight? What's really going on? Oh, oh absolutely. You're, you're creating yeah. more attention. So clear, 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 but very kind. Oh, certainly. And I know it is actually, it really amplifies the uncomfortableness. Oh, Discomfort? Sure. That's the word. Discomfort. <laughs> when when yeah. you're there, it turns like, what exactly are we talking about here? And I think that something heavy is on your mind, but I don't perfectly know what it is yet. And, and I'm kind of spooked and just sort of waiting for the shoe to drop. Okay. <laughs> so I love that tip about being super clear. And I love that sentence associated with, I want us to not have this tension. I want to have a great relationship with you. And I think, boy, even the most, I don't know, hardcore, purely task result oriented, Grinch, <laughs> heart of stone human being. I think if you hear that, I think it just about everyone say, well, well, yeah, I, I'd like that too. It may be hard because of all these things that you do that drive me nuts. And or it's, I might not think it's in the cards because oh, you are, are so wrong so profoundly in these ways that disrupt me. But I think that that is something that just about everyone can agree to, which is cool. Now, I want to zero in. I'm a little fixated, though, on you brought up getting a witness. And I think that, in a way, that makes awesome sense in terms of you don't want things misconstrued. And I didn't say that at all, right? And it totally can happen. So but at the same time, they have an observer present changes the kind of the vibe, the dynamic. It's almost like, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. This is serious, hardcore stuff. And so, yeah, that sounds... Tricky. So lay, no, lay it on not, me a little more of your philosophy not, there. There's no trickiness about it. In fact, having a, a third person in there that is objective and in leadership or on the same level as both of you. Oh, sure, sure. So they're invested. So this is not somebody that would be below them. Ideally, it's a leadership position. And I probably did not stipulate that. So let me be very, very clear. That's what I'm suggesting. If this is a serious confrontation, this isn't some just little, hey, listen, you said this the other day in the meeting. I know you didn't mean No, this is like, you gave me the scenario, Pete, of like, you're not happy, you want to get out. So this is the last resort. So that's when you get the third. That's what I'm talking about. And it's not tricky at all because it actually does what you said it does, which is it takes a whole nother level of seriousness. Like, okay, what's going on here? Especially when you let them know what the meeting's about. And then they realize that person's in there, that leadership's in there. And it just got real. And that's what needs to happen. This is serious business. Number two, it's not just about having a witness so that things cannot be misconstrued and that you've got all that kind of stuff for HR and for the record, but it's also so that you're in check as well. You're not going to come at somebody with a machine gun of charges and wear them out in front of a leader either, unless you're completely tone deaf. So it also keeps you in check and helps your posture stay in a place of gracious confrontation. Hey, this isn't about being angry. This is about let's get some resolution here. And so it becomes less personal when we have another person, especially in leadership, that is observing. The third thing is, is that person is objective. So when it's all said and done, 
it's good to have that leader speak into the situation, either one-on-one with each of you afterwards or right then and there or later. But I absolutely think if you're about serious, redemptive confrontation, you need to have a third-party person. I mean, that's exactly what the Bible prescribes. And I think that if you're going to confront somebody, you go right to them. But I think in this type of work setting where it's really ugly, I would have a third party involved. Okay, gotcha. So I think that's helpful that we're aligning on context right here. Again, I think healthy confrontation, you get a leader involved and you get on the same page and that way you realize, hey, we're not coming after you. I'm not taking a shot at you. We need to fix this. This is not acceptable behavior. I just don't see any problem with bringing in a leader, especially if you've talked to a leader ahead of time. Now, if the leader says, hey, I'm not comfortable, handle it one-on-one, then go for it. But I'm giving you what I think is the best way to handle confrontation in the workplace. I mean, serious confrontation where it needs to stop. Behavior needs to change. If it's just, you, this was a misunderstanding, Pete, then I'm fine with just one-on-one, go to lunch. But I think if a behavior needs to stop, then it's got to have a third party involved. Uh, here's my resistance point. It seems like bringing the leader in like, definitely brings with it a set of, of awesome advantages that you've laid out. I think the, the disadvantage that I use the term tricky, you know, not to be like a politically sneaky in the sense of the word tricky, but tricky as in, oh, the person on the receiving end of this may get seriously enraged that I quote tattled or told or brought the, the hammer of authority upon them in a way that it's sort of like it diminishes their reputation, good name, whatever you want to call it. And so I'm thinking that you could get a little bit of a backlash or a negative response just from the fact that that has happened. Yeah. Again, you're not bringing authority down on them. You just have somebody that is either an equal peer on the same level who's just somebody who cares about both of you and wants to help with the resolution or a leader is involved because, again, the behavior needs to stop. So I'm really not worried about them getting enraged. And you're not doing it publicly. You're doing it in a private setting with leadership. I just think that's the that's a healthy, healthy environment when you can do that. So we may have to agree to disagree. This is not my particular line of expertise. I'm not an HR consultant, but that's my answer to that question. Ken, what I'm loving here is that you have introduced something wholly new to my brain in terms of <laughs> like, oh, that's a fine thought. And I am, am playing it every which way in terms of the pros and cons and implications and, and repercussions. And of course, listeners will make their own judgments. And so I'm digging it. And, and I'm thinking that this tool absolutely has its place in the toolkit. So it, it's been expanded in my brain, <laughs> which I like. It's almost like a video game, like power up noise. Sure. And understand that that's how I think confrontation should be handled when something needs to stop. We're not going to be sweet and soft about it. We're going to be kind and respectful, but extremely honest. And to me, there's no sense in having four or five processes and setups. So yeah, I get that. That may be uncomfortable for some, but I can tell you this, if you try it, it, it's the beginning of the end of that behavior one way or the other. Cool. Okay. Well, so we covered that in great detail. So moving on to new topics, I'd like to get your view for, if folks are right here right now, feeling some burnout, but not yet ready to make the leap because of financial or other sorts of considerations, are there any pro tips for what can make the experience of work life suck less (laughs) right here and right now where you are? Sure. Yeah. I think it's about progress. 
So you're in a position where you know you want to leave where you're at, but you can't. And so it's about mindset. And what we know about the human condition, there's all kinds of science out there on this, is that when we are making progress towards our goals, even if it is incremental, so it can be the slightest amount of progress, it does motivate us further. It keeps us engaged. So engagement is many times about making some progress. So that could be a multitude of things. If somebody calls me on the show and says, okay, Ken, it's going to take me three years to get out of debt. And so it's going to take me at least that. Plus, uh, then I've got to go to school to get where I want to go. So it's, I had a call the other day. guy said, it's going to be about five, six years. What do you suggest I do in that time? And so we broke down where he wanted to go and what he wanted to do. And so he eventually wanted to be a physical therapist. He's only got so much he can do. So what would he focus on? Well, the fact that he's knocking off his financial goals, that's going to fire him up because every time he pays off a debt, he's getting that much closer to freedom, freedom to pursue what it is that he wants to do. So there's some financial goals that if you begin to change the perspective that it's not just paying off some stupid decisions that you made years ago, it's, wait a second, every time I pay something off on a monthly basis, I'm getting closer and closer to my goal. That's a mindset switch and it really will help you. But then specifically, I told him, I said, hey, what are some things you can do? Because at the end of the day, you really love the idea of helping people and and through therapy and things of that nature. So what about massage therapy or could you go work for a physical therapist 5, 10, 15 hours a week so that you're at least in the space of the work that you want to be doing? He lit up like a Christmas tree. He never even thought of that. So there's a guy that if he goes and he just starts working part-time for a therapist or he starts working for a spa or something like that and he's you know, engaged in the work that he wants to do long-term, he's getting a little taste of it. And so what that's doing is I liken passion to an appetite. And if you want to get a healthy appetite, a nutritionist is going to tell you you got to put the right stuff in your body at the right times. And so that's three, four, five, six meals a day, whatever. So you can do the same thing while you're in the waiting. What little things can you do? What can you read? What classes can you take? And in the space that you want to be in. And what you're doing there is you're feeding your appetite and you're keeping your passion not only alive, but you're actually growing your passion and you're keeping everything kind of going and it'll allow you to get through what you need to get through. The whole idea of doing what you have to do so you can do what you want to do. And many times what you'll find is that you'll get there faster because your passion is motivating you. So it's all about getting as much as you can while you can. You're not going to get it all, but get a little bit, get as much as you can, and uh, you'll find that time flies and you get where you want to be before you know it. That's good. Well, entering the sort of final phase of these questions, I'd love to hear, you've asked many questions in your your podcasts and your book, One Question, Life-Changing Answers from Today's Leading Voices. What are some of the most exceptionally useful tidbits if you could just give us a bullet or two or three that you've gathered from these folks that are particularly applicable to working professionals. Yeah, that's hard to choose from, but I I think two that popped to the top of my mind. One was from Jim Collins, the author of Good to Great, arguably the greatest researcher in business when it relates to great companies, what makes them, what breaks them. And I asked him actually in my book one question, I I was coming at him on this idea of We all love greatness. Think about it. We love to go to a great restaurant or to a great concert or cheer for a great team. But sadly, when we look at the numbers, most of us are okay with an average life. We don't pursue greatness in our personal lives. And I was asking him, why is that? And he said something I'd never thought about before, but it's so brilliant. He said, it's not that we're risk averse. 
it's that we're ambiguity averse. And I'm going to say that again because it's so heavy. He says that people don't pursue greatness because they're worried about the risk. They don't pursue greatness because they're worried about the unknown. So for instance, Pete, if I say to you, hey, we're going to go do some action sport. And I say, there's a couple of risks. You might break an arm at the very worst, but you're going to get beat up a little bit. It's going to be a lot of fun. I've told you what the risks are and you go, okay, great. But if I say we're going to go do something and we have no idea how it's going to turn out, that can literally paralyze a person. And it's true. Science shows all kinds of data there. The number one thing that humans are afraid of is the unknown. So that speaks, by the way, into the stat that many people have heard, that people are more afraid of public speaking and death. Because with death, we kind of go, all right, I'm dead. Well, public speaking, I don't know if people are going to like me or they're going to throw tomatoes at me. They're going to laugh at me, whatever it is. This ambiguity is what paralyzes us. So uh, that was really, really strong. And then the other piece is I interviewed Coach K, the Hall of Fame Duke basketball coach. It was the first interview I ever did. It's a crazy story. Unbelievable how I got to do that interview. But he said something to me at the time, and I had little ones. They were all, I think, under three. And he said something about some of his point guards that he's had in the past. And he singled out two specifically, Bobby Hurley and Tommy Amaker. And he said, both of those guys were very, very different. And I coached them different. And he said that I had to learn how to let them be who they are in the framework of the system. And then he went into another story. He said, I'm the same way with just my program in general. I don't give much leniency at all to freshmen. For instance, if a freshman misses the bus by five minutes, we leave him there, even if he's an All-American. But if a junior or senior is five minutes late, we're going to hold the bus. He goes, I call it fair but not equal. And it was a great piece of parenting advice and leadership advice that has stuck with me. It's really, really true. As leaders, as parents, we're going to have to really understand this idea of fair but not equal. You can't treat everybody equally. And we live in a day and age, Pete, you know this, in 2017, almost 2018, where it's all about fairness, fairness, fairness. But what it's really about is equality. And there's certain equality that has to be in place when we talk about rights. But I'm talking about in a workplace, you're going to have to treat certain people differently. And you can be fair, but you can't treat everybody equally as it relates to in the business and, and what they're doing, the function they're doing, they have different personalities, so you got to reward them differently. You recognize them differently. You reprimand them differently. Same thing with parenting. It's a really brilliant thought, and it's something that I think about on a daily basis as a dad. Those are nice, clear distinctions. I dig it. And then to sort of swap it a little bit, you're often asking many people many questions. I'd love it if you could share a couple transformational questions that you've been posed or asked of and that have been particularly transformational for you? Well, that's a very interesting question. I don't recall that I've had any guests that I've been in an interview format with turn the tables on me and ask me a transformational question just by the nature of what we're doing. But I certainly think of some transformational questions that I've had mentors ask me. I had a a mentor who was mentoring me in the area of marriage when I was in my 20s. And he said something to me that I'll never forget. He said, the next time that you're going to express disappointment or anger or whatever with Stacy, He said, I want you to ask yourself this question first. Is it going to matter 25 years from now? And I remember going, you know, like I've probably been married like three or four years at the time. And it was so revolutionary to me and not just in my marriage, but in general. And I think that that's, that's something I'd pass along. That's probably one of the most powerful questions 
that I've ever been asked by somebody was that right there. Because I think many times we react in a moment and then it's the type of thing that if we were to put that kind of uh, filter on it, think of the lack of confrontation. Think of the dumb tweets that we wouldn't tweet or think of the, you know, whatever it would be. But to put that lens on it is really important. So I guess that's probably the most transformational question I've ever been asked by anybody. Awesome. Cool. Well, Ken, tell me, anything you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and rapid fire hear about some of your favorite things? Oh, no, man, this is your show. So I, I, I'm just here to, to answer your questions. I'm, I'm enjoying it. So nothing to promote. All right, cool. Well, then let's do it. Could you start us off by sharing a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Yeah, well, I share this one on the Ken Coleman show all the time. I probably share it once a week. And it's by W.H. Murray. And this is a Scottish mountaineer who also is a writer. And you got to think of this, as I'm sharing this, as a guy who made his living on these daring expeditions. But he once wrote, until one is committed, there is hesitancy, the chance to draw back. Concerning all acts of initiative, there's one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans. That the moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves too. All sorts of things occur to help one that would never otherwise have occurred. A whole stream of events issues from the decision, raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and material assistance, which no man could have dreamed would have come his way. Whatever you can do or dream you can do, begin it. Boldness has genius power and magic in it. Here's my favorite three words. Begin it now. Awesome. Thank you. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? Favorite experiment, bit of research. I think some research by the University of Michigan. I revealed this in my book, One Question, and it's in the last chapter, talking about how to reattain this habit of inquiry that we all are born with. As little kids, we ask hundreds of questions a day. And the University of Michigan did some research on that premise. And so they found that toddlers sometimes can ask as many as a thousand questions a day, hundreds and hundreds of questions a day, up to a thousand questions a day. But by the time the average American reaches the eighth grade, we're asking three questions a day. And that research fueled me to write that last chapter. And I just was so, so just really, I think despondent at the time. It's such a strong word. But when I read that, I was like, what is going on? And life and our Western education system is beating the curiosity out of us. Think about this, Pete. We're becoming trained to be test takers instead of pathfinders. So it's all about, hey, get ready for the test. Get ready for the test. Standardized tests. It's all about taking tests and having the answer as opposed to knowing how to ask questions. And I think that curiosity is the great key for life. It's going to unlock so many doors for you. So that research for me, I got lost in that. That was pretty interesting stuff. Oh, cool. Thank you. And how about a favorite book? Favorite book. I think uh, right now that could change within the hour if you ask me that again. I would say The Art of Power by John Meacham. It's about Thomas Jefferson. He's one of the great thinkers uh, the world has ever known. I'm a big Jeffersonian, fascinated by the guy. But it's, it's a book largely written from the letters that he wrote. So I would say that's probably my favorite book. And how about a favorite tool that helps you be awesome at your job? That would be feedback. Right on. And how about a favorite habit? Quiet time in the morning. I'm up before everybody else. It's dark, it's quiet, and I've got a little routine with music and reading and meditating and thinking and breathing. And that's, uh, I would say that with a great cup of coffee is my favorite habit. Awesome. And is there a particular nugget you share that seems to really resonate with folks and they repeat it back to you often? 
I think the thing we hear from the audience the most that they, they quote is the proximity principle. And that says that in order to do what I want to do, I have to be around people that are doing it and in places that it is happening. And this is a game changer when you realize that and you just get where you need to be. You're observing, you're learning, you're watching. So we're, we're hearing a lot of that. I think that's kind of the thing right now, the axiom. And Ken, if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Yeah, KenColemanShow.com. And love for them to check out the show. If they don't have SiriusXM, they can get it. It's a daily podcast on iTunes or Google Play. We've got a great free resource. In fact, that Jim Collins answer that I mentioned to you, that's actually available on my website, KenColemanShow.com. It's absolutely free on the homepage. I forgot to mention that, but that's such a great... I love that so much that you can get that audio chapter for free from the audio book. But they can check us out, subscribe, and share on iTunes. And again, Sirius XM, channel 132. Oh, cool. And Ken, do you have a final challenge or call to action you'd leave folks who are seeking to be awesome at their job with? Yeah, I, I think that the thing that you need to remember on a daily basis, and you need to find a way to remind yourself and make this come alive. But if I could record a little audio bite that everybody would listen to every day, it would be to say, you matter and you've got what it takes. You really do matter. There's something that you were created to do, a very unique role. And it doesn't necessarily have to be tied to uh, big dollars. It doesn't have to necessarily be tied to fame or power, but it is tied to significance. And you do matter. And that's the first thing. And then you do have what it takes. You have within you what it takes to do what it is you were created to do. So now it's just about doing it. You believe that. And if you truly believe it, then you'll become it. Awesome. Well, Ken, thank you so much for sharing this time and perspectives. This has been a, a real treat. I wish you tons of luck with your shows and books and speaking and all you're up to. Thanks, Pete. I really appreciate you, man. Thanks for having me on. I really love this conversation so much because as you probably heard and noticed, Ken and I were coming at that perspective of bringing another person into the conversation from different angles, have a bit of disagreement and a bit of understanding and, and reaching some common ground. And that's been a theme that's popped up in the show again and again in terms of, hey, is there that psychological safety within teams for folks to disagree a bit? And to not take offense and to have that generate some cool, good stuff through that creative tension. So that happened here in this conversation. If you were worried, uh, Kate and I are totally cool. <laughs> we had a great chat after the recorder went off and I, I think he's well. And, and I hope he thinks the same of me. So that's the scoop is there are some pros and cons to that approach. And I think it's a great extra tool to have in the toolkit in terms of if you're ready, it's like, you know what? I'm about ready to leave if this thing doesn't get changed and I've tried a number of options. Here's one more that could make the difference for you. So I thought that was pretty fun. So again, if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced, it's right there at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep258. And I hope if you haven't already, you do push subscribe. You'll hear from our next guest. It is Adrian Gostick. And Adrian has a wealth of insight when it comes to motivation. What is it about? How to get more of it? Instilling it, fanning it into flame, and, and that good stuff. So I hope to catch you there. And peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 